A remembrance of the kind that we're talking about is when you anticipate that time and you set aside an entire block of time. It might be the entire evening or the entire day or you might go away for the weekend and you, you get out the photo albums and you flip through them and you, you remember and you laugh and you cherish and you treasure and you delight and you recommit to this covenant that you've entered into. That's, that's the kind of remembrance that is to accompany this table. Today we are going to set aside time. The entire, the entire sermon will center around this table. And we'll have time to talk about it and reflect upon it and delight in it and cherish it and give thanks for it. To give thanks for Christ, the one who knew no sin, but became sin for us. And to do that, uh, I'd like to use a different aid to remembering than we usually do today. I'd like for us to, to look at the aid that Jesus liked to use when he celebrated, or when he walked through his, with his disciples to help them remember him. Um, in John chapter 5, and uh, are my slides up back there, guys? Yes, they are. Thank you very much. Um, Jesus is in one of those sparring conversations with the religious leaders in John chapter 5, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they the scriptures that bear witness about me. And, of course, Jesus is talking about the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 24, the resurrected Christ is walking unbeknownst to his disciples. He has accompanied them, and he is giving them hope and showing them. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself beginning with Moses and then all the prophets. The Apostle Paul would write in Galatians chapter 3, he says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So the scriptures, Jesus says, the Old Testament bears witness to him. And he particularly interprets the things that Moses had taught surely including the law of Moses as teaching about him. Paul says that the law, surely including at least the law of Moses, is a tutor that leads us to Christ. And we've talked a lot different ways about how the law of Moses, this middle section of Deuteronomy that we've been studying, has value for us today. It, it shows us the character of the lawgiver. It shows us our great God and shows us the kind of people he's calling us to be, a people who reflect his character to the nations. And it shows us our sin and our need and our need of a Savior. And that is where we want to focus today. Like the verses we've just seen, the law of Moses points to Christ. And... 
It's easy to miss it sometimes in all those different curious sounding laws that we've been thinking about, but it's full of pointers to Christ, what one author called the shadow of Christ in the law of Moses. And as we're going to see today, I hope, it's a pretty big shadow. The law of Moses shows us Christ over and over and over again. And so as we ready ourselves to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're going to remember Christ by looking at just a few of the pointers towards him throughout the law of Moses that we've been studying. Um, Now, you need to put your thinking caps on, okay? And you're probably going to want to follow along a lot on the screen because I'm going to look at Deuteronomy, and then I'm going to take you to the New Testament. I'm going to look at a verse in Deuteronomy, and I'm going to take you to the New Testament. So if chasing me through the Bible helps you stay awake, have at it. Otherwise, we'll, you may want to make use of the screen today so that you can think carefully with me about how this ancient law in the sovereignty of God shows us Christ. So let's pray, and we'll seek Christ in his word together. Lord, help us see Help us know your son by your law. May your spirit illumine the word for us today. May Christ be exalted and may he be remembered well. This savior of ours, we pray in his name. Amen. So the law bears witness about Christ. It teaches things concerning him. It's a tutor that that leads us to him. So... Let's look in Deuteronomy 13, back towards the beginning of this legal section in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13 says of a city that had gone um, AWOL, it had gone rebel, it had gone over to the dark side. It had been luring people away to other gods in Deuteronomy 13. Moses says, you shall gather all that city's spoil into the midst of the open square and burn the city and all of its spoil with fire. As a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. This rebellious, idolatrous city is to be burned, but not just burned. It's to be offered as a burnt offering. And if we were to go back and read in the book of Leviticus, we would find that this is a very specific kind of offering that's being offered to the Lord as an act of worship. Now, I'm going to quote often today from a commentary that I have found to be tremendously helpful. It is a commentary on Leviticus by a guy named Alan Ross. And I am going to quote it very frequently. It is tremendously helpful in thinking about how the law shows us Christ. Um, So I'm not going to tell you every time I'm quoting him. So if it sounds brilliant, You can pretend like it's me, it's probably him. This is what he says. Um, He says, a prominent theme in the law of Moses, especially recorded in Leviticus, the blood was to be, in a burnt offering, the blood was to be boldly thrown on the altar as part of this offering. He says, this sudden display of the blood figuratively cried out to God, that satisfaction had been exacted through the death of the victim. Then the body of the animal was to be totally consumed by fire in a burnt offering. He says to make atonement for sin was one of the central purposes of the burnt offering. By means of these sacrifices, or, or perhaps by what the sacrifice represented, 
the worshiper was cleansed of impurities and became reconciled with God. It's a very important offering. The purpose of the sacrifice was to turn away and appease God's wrath against sin and defilement and thereby purge the offender. Thus, the burnt offering in which the whole animal was consumed indicated that God's holiness was satisfied and the offer was now accepted. So the, the worshiper had been reconciled to God through the symbolism of this sacrifice. Atonement was not made by the blood of an animal or by the manipulation of the people, but by what the animal represented in God's program. Forgiveness and purification were graciously bestowed by the Lord on the individual who by faith submitted to him and followed through with his ritual. And God was free to declare forgiveness. This is really important. Listen closely. God was free to declare forgiveness because of his eternal decree that one day he would provide the perfect sacrifice to pay for the sins of the world once and for all. Okay. So these sacrifices were symbolic of a greater sacrifice. The New Testament shows vividly that this is Christ. Peter writes, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And again, Ross says, Christians have favor with God because of the merits of the shed blood of the Lamb of God. This is the eternal plan of God revealed first in the law of the burnt offering and fulfilled in the sacrificial death of the Messiah. Everything that believers do then must be based on the firm conviction that by the shed blood of Jesus the Messiah and by his blood alone, they have free access to the Father now and in the world to come. So in Moses' law, the burnt offering is a pointer to Christ. All the offerings actually are pointers to Christ, but the burnt offering perhaps especially points us to Jesus. Now you can flip a couple of pages forward in Deuteronomy to Deuteronomy 16. And here it says, Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night, and you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. So the Passover feast, this Passover celebration, was a remembrance of the way God had delivered his people from bondage by slaying the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but sparing the firstborn of the Israelites. You remember that, the last and greatest of the horrible plagues. The lamb of the Passover was slain. Its blood was painted on the doorposts of the house. And whenever the Lord saw the blood, he passed over that house and did not slay the firstborn in it. So the feast is a symbolic remembrance of God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They would offer a Passover lamb, just had been done on that night in Egypt, and by the blood of that lamb, their deliverance had been secured, and their child's life had literally been spared. 
the Lamb's life, the Lamb's blood, was given for the lives of their little ones. They would eat this feast then, and they would remember God's great rescue. Now, the symbols reminded them of their great need and of God's great rescue. As we turn to the New Testament, the obvious fulfillment is stated by Paul. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Christ is our Passover lamb. He has given his life for ours to spare us the just wrath of God. He is the lamb that was slain so that God's judgment would pass over us. And so when we eat this feast, we remember God's Passover lamb for us, okay. Christ. So in Moses' law, the Passover feast and the lamb that was slain there points us towards Christ. We back up a couple more chapters to the very beginning of the law in chapter 12. It says, you may slaughter meat within any of your towns. It gives a bunch of rules about eating meat and slaughtering meat. And at the end, maybe you remember this rule. It says, only you shall not eat the blood. You shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. We talked, uh, if you remember, the ethical dilemma of whether or not we should eat Bubba's blood sausage or not. That may help you remember uh, what we did um, with this passage. Don't eat the blood, it says. Do not eat the blood. But it's interesting. When you go to the New Testament, in John chapter 6, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Ellen Ross says, nothing else can be offered to God for atonement, especially not an inferior offering like the works of righteousness that sinful creatures can bring. This is the absolute center of the faith, the essence of Christianity, the basic doctrine of the church. Nothing short of this satisfies the demands of the righteous God. Nothing other than his pleasure precious blood can redeem. So the sacredness of the blood in the Old Testament, in these rituals, points towards this great sacred offering of the blood, the one that we must not eat and the one that we must eat, we must drink, we must partake of. And of course, that points again to this remembrance where we drink of the cup that reminds us of his blood. So in Moses' law, um, the precious blood of life itself points to Christ and his life-giving blood that's poured out to us. Again, another pointer to Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 21, the priests shall come forward for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. So throughout Deuteronomy, 
um, or throughout the, the law, especially in Leviticus, the, the priest was to represent God to the people through his teaching, and he was to represent the people to God through the offering of these sacrifices. He acted as a mediator between a sinful people and a holy God. And these priests, they would offer these sacrifices daily. Many times a day the sacrifices were offered over and over and over again. The priest would go between the people, the sinful people and their holy God. In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, we read this in chapter 10. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, referring to those priests in the Old Covenant, stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. The daily sacrifice of the priest in this law, which in and of itself could not take away sins, pointed to Christ's one great sacrifice on the cross, which was a single sacrifice offered once for all time for all sin. And so... In Moses' law, the priests are a foreshadowing of the great high priest, Jesus. They would offer their daily sacrifices. He would offer one sacrifice for all time. The role of the priest in the law of Moses points to Christ. Then there's all those laws about things being unclean. Okay. Pigs, unclean, famously Deuteronomy 23, the guy who, by reason of uncleanness that chances him in the night. Okay, you remember this from last week, I'm sure. Um, this rendered people unclean. Um, another similar kind of when, when uh, uh, issuing from people that rendered them unclean was bleeding. When women would bleed. They would be considered unclean. Leviticus elaborates on this. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And everything on she which she sits shall be unclean. That was close. As in the... That, that would probably be unclean too. And let me try that again real slowly. Everything on which she sits shall be unclean. I knew there's a reason I didn't like the ESV. This is, this is one of those reasons. They, they put tongue twisters in it if you read it publicly. Okay. Anyway... As in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity, and whoever even touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. So, in Moses' law, right, this woman who's having some kind of bleeding um, is rendered unclean, 
And as a result of that, when you were unclean, you were not permitted access to the presence of the Lord. It was symbolic of sin. And you, you couldn't enter the presence of a holy God without your sin atoned for. Just to touch this woman or to touch something she had touched would render you unclean. Now watch what happens in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus effectively meets this woman. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him. So she'd been experiencing this kind of unclean experience for 12 years, not permitted into the temple for 12 years came up behind him, touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. See, in Moses' law, this woman was unclean. Just to touch this woman or simply touch something she had touched rendered you unclean. But when she touches Jesus, he does not become unclean. She becomes clean. In Christ, everyone who had been separated from God by their sins, their uncleanness, can now draw near to God through faith in him. Listen again to Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Okay, We can draw near to God in Christ with confidence. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In Moses' law, this barrier of uncleanness points to Christ who can make all of us clean if we will but trust in him and his good work before a very, very, very holy God. These laws, these clean, unclean laws point us to Christ. Deuteronomy 24 says this, Take care in, in a case of leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priests shall direct you as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. And we talked about this before. This is a very short summary of two entire chapters in the book of Leviticus that just deal with these kinds of defilement, diseases of the skin and uh, related mildew on your house and things like that. Um, these are physical reminders of the holiness of God. Disease, especially leprosy, often represented sin and brought about ritual uncleanness. And lepers were required, according to that Levitical law, that law of Moses recorded in Leviticus, in extreme cases to carry out this ritual. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, 
unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That is, removed from the presence of God in the camp. This was the fate of someone who had this kind of disease. But when Jesus encounters a leper, watch what happens in Luke chapter 5. Well, he's in one of the cities. There came a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, which would have rendered anyone else unclean, but not Jesus. And Jesus said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. You can look farther in Luke in chapter 17. He encounters not one, but ten lepers. He heals them all. They are all made clean. When lepers meet Jesus, they are cleansed, healed, and restored to the camp where the presence of God was. In Moses' law, the severity of leprosy points to the, to the severity of our sin and to the one who can remove it all. With just a touch, with just a word, he can bring the people back into the camp, back into a relationship with God because he has covered their sin. Let me show you one last way that Deuteronomy points us to Christ. In Deuteronomy 17, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. God required the best of sacrifices to be offered to him in his name. Not just any sacrifice would do. In fact, if you read it there, he required perfection. No blemishes, no defects. To offer less was, was an abomination to the Lord. It would not be accepted... The implication is the sin would not be atoned for. So where do you go to get a perfect sacrifice? And, of course, this is this great pointer towards what we read earlier. When Peter says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with... The precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul puts it this way. I love this verse. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned. 
never broke one of the 613 commands in the law of Moses. Not once, never, all his life. He had a perfect track record. He never sinned. And in Moses' law, the requirement of an unblemished sacrifice, that requirement is met fully and finally in Jesus. It points to Jesus, who, like a lamb without blemish or spot, took our sins upon himself on the cross, and there he satisfied the justice and the wrath of a holy God for our sake. He who knew no sin became sin. So the law, over and over, and I'm just highlighting a few things. If you were to read back through it now, you would see pointers to Jesus everywhere. Everywhere. Giving the people hope. Everywhere that God is going to make a full and final provision for their sin. So the law points to Christ. And according to the New Testament, Christ fulfills the law. Jesus uses that language himself in in Matthew 5, he says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, it's a bit puzzling. How can you fulfill the law and end the law, be the end of the law, but not abolish the law. Again, let me, uh, I was helped by Alan Ross. He says, what do these passages mean then? He says, first, Jesus fully obeyed all that the law required. He kept the commandments and fulfilled their intent as God intended. He alone was completely righteous, completely obedient, completely sinless. He alone revealed the righteousness of God. And this qualified him to be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Second, because Jesus was perfect, he was able to fulfill what the law promised. His earthly ministry provided what all the sacrifices, offerings, and priestly rituals were anticipating. What we've just seen. So when Jesus died on the cross, he changed the function of the law for the household of faith, not by abolishing it, but by fulfilling it in every way. And as a result of that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. We have a song that our worship team wrote about that. Daniel Creswell wrote that song. That our Christ is yes. He is the yes for all the promises of God. John Piper explains that by saying all the promises of God in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is, when you have Christ, sooner or later you will have both Christ himself and all else that God promised through him. So when Christ died, he rose and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, completing his earthly ministry. The blood sacrifices ceased because Christ fulfilled all that they were pointing toward. 
He was the final, unrepeatable sacrifice for sins. The priesthood that stood between the worshiper and God has ceased because Christ is now our high priest. The physical temple has ceased to be the geographic center of worship. Now Christ himself is the center of worship. He is the place, the tent, and the temple where we meet God. Therefore, Christianity does not have a geographic center. There's no Mecca for us. There's no Jerusalem for us. Christ is the center. The laws that set Israel apart from the nations have been fulfilled and ended in Christ. We are, therefore, no longer under the law. Because Jesus fulfilled the law, the Apostle Paul can then point to a new law for the church, the law of Christ. To be free from the law of Moses does not mean being free from all commandments or restraints. Ross is writing this. He says, it means that for those who are in Christ, the law has no power to condemn because Christ has fulfilled it. And with the provision that Christ has made by fulfilling the law, the Christian is enabled to fulfill what the law demanded, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He has kept the law. He has fulfilled the law. And the whole law points to him. So when we come to this table in just a few moments, who are we remembering? Who is the one who awaits us at this table? to commune with us. Who has made this possible? The one to whom the entire Old Testament looked forward to with longing. That's who waits us at this table. The one the prophets heralded and the one the law described. The one whose blood was boldly splashed on the altar and his body broken as the final offering for our sin. He waits us here. That's who we remember. The one who is our Passover lamb, whose life is offered up to spare us the wrath of God and bring about the great rescue for us from our sin. That's who we remember. That's who waits for us. the one who spilled his life's blood, whose body we must now eat and whose blood we must now drink by faith in order that we might have eternal life. The great high priest, the one who made the great sacrifice once for all, the one who cleanses us from our sin like the woman who bled for 12 years, like the 10 lepers, the one who kept the law perfectly, who was without sin his whole life, the one who fulfilled the law and lived the life the law required for us. This is the one that we remember. This is the one with whom we now commune. We remember together that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus, this one to whom the whole Testament pointed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body and it's broken for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the meal, he took the cup. He said, this cup, it's the new covenant in my blood. My blood. The blood of all the sacrifices before pointed to this blood that was to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me.